0: So we've got a terrific panel uh, where we're going to discuss financial privacy and free speech. And I'll quickly run down our panelists, introduce them, and we'll get started. So next to me, I have Andrea Castillo, who is program manager at the technology policy program at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And Andrea is the co-author of this primer that George just mentioned uh, with me. And to be honest, between you and me, she actually wrote it. And I just went along for the ride and put my name on (laughs) it. Um, We have Jim Harper who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and has been working in the Bitcoin space for a very long time Uh, We've got Eric Lorber um, Who is senior associate at the Financial Integrity Network and an adjunct fellow at the Center for a new American security and next to him we have Zuko Wilcox O'Hearn and Zuko is the founder and CEO of Zcash, which he's gonna tell us about Uh, cool thing about Zuko Um, When Satoshi Nakamoto uh, first published the Bitcoin white paper and put up a website saying, look at this thing you you guys might be interested in, he had um, on the side a little um, uh, uh, sort of uh, blog roll with the three or four blogs that he said were um, influences or interesting, uh, similar work, and Zuko's uh, was among them. Uh, So uh, he comes from a a deep um, uh, crypto lineage beginning with uh, Digicash back in the day. So why don't um, we begin um, by talking about um, how governments use um, their understanding of money flows, um, which is sort of central to uh, this conversation we're going to have. And maybe, Eric, I'll start with you um, and ask you, you know, the US uses finance as a tool um, to project American power. So do you want to tell us, you know, we all kind of know that, but really how, how does that happen?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Jerry, and thanks for, for having us. I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I was a research assistant at Cato a long, long time ago. Uh, decades, uh, measured, uh, measured in decades, so it's great to be back here. So thank you for having uh, me. In terms of power projection, uh, I come at this from sort of the, the countering the financing of terrorism, economic sanctions perspective, and sort of the regulatory space in that area. And I will say that the United States over the past 15 years has used the dollar both for sort of this coercive power, but also for financial intelligence. Um, I think it's something like 85 to 87% of all cross-border trade is dollarized trade. Uh, and so at some point, much of that trade is going to have to touch the United States, at which point you know, many of the banks doing, that types of, uh, doing those types of transactions have to report back potentially suspicious information through suspicious activity reports and through other uh, mechanisms what exactly is going on um, uh, sort of in the world, basically, and w- with actors who we view as illicit, and so I think that to a large extent the u s is able to really get a sense for different types of illicit networks through its view into financial um, into financial transactions into and into the view um, looking at what the dollar uh, where the dollar goes and how the dollar flows through different networks so i think it's to a large extent it 's crucial both for sort of the u s economic sanctions uh, uh, sort of apparatus, but also more, more generally, it's been crucial over the past 15 years for countering financial terrorism and for sort of the, the war on um, illicit finance.
0: So g- can you give us some sort of concrete examples of here's an objective of the United States and how it achieved that objective using these tools and how financial intelligence fit into that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So for example, um, let's, let's take everyone's favorite Uh, sort of gift that keeps on giving with Iran sanctions. Um, The United States basically in 2012, 2010 to 2012, basically said to foreign financial institutions that were interested in doing business in the United States uh, in New York, either you can do business in New York markets, U.S. markets, and dollarized transactions, or you can uh, do business in Iran, but you can't do both. And so the vast majority of banks really sort of jumped on this sort of bandwagon saying, okay, well, we'd prefer to do business in the U.S., so we'll cut Iran off from doing these various transactions. And so what you saw was both sort of this course of power operating, but then also the banks would report back to U.S. regulators precisely the financial flows that they were seeing that touched Iran because they were afraid of getting these large enforcement actions against them. So in effect, the U.S. government was able to sort of deputize these private actors to provide them with all this information that they were seeing in terms of illicit flows. And so that was actually able... a way that the United States was able, uh, able to sort of identify a lot of what Hezbollah and a lot of what sort of the, IR, uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps were doing and how they were moving money through the national financial system.
0: So the U.S. had an objective. We want Iran to behave a different way they're behaving now. We say if you don't behave the way we want, we implement sanctions. Exactly. And these are the tools that we use. And you said that this were aimed at foreign. Financial
1: institutions. That's right.
0: Were they also not affecting domestic uh, uh, institutions and, and, and right? Institutions?
1: Yeah. So the regulations apply to U.S. domestic institutions, but um, they've applied to U.S. domestic institutions for a long period okay, so of we time. Had so that yeah, it was already place. there were no real serious Iranian transactions going back and forth through the U.S. system
0: because it was already
1: yeah, it was already prohibited activity. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: Um, So in order to accomplish this, you obviously need a lot of financial surveillance, right? So this is where, um, when you think about the word surveillance, well, if you think about communication surveillance, you're listening to what people are saying to each other, or maybe you don't even listen to that, maybe you just have the metadata, as we like to say, and you know who's talking to whom, for how long, that sort of thing. But we gather the same kind of information about financial transactions that we all do every day. So it's surveillance that the government conducts on financial transactions uh, to accomplish the, these ends. So Jim, I guess to, to you, my, my question is simply, um, how does that square with individual privacy?
2: Well, there's a, it's a, uh, I, I think the topic uh, helps to surface a culture clash of sorts uh, in US policy. Uh, there has been long practiced financial surveillance of various kinds and most people haven't known about it very much. Whether it, whether it comes up through Bitcoin or comes up organically uh, through the next Snowden or, 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 or some other way, uh, we are, all of us, uh, subject to heavy, heavy surveillance in our financial activities. And how that ports over to, to Bitcoin has some interesting questions, but I think the larger ones are, are probably more important. Uh, is the financial surveillance regime cost-effective security? Uh, what are our rights in information about our, our financial behavior? I was uh, particularly interested to see during the rulemaking, uh, such as it was uh, in the, uh, the, bit, the bit license Affair in, in, in New York, where the Department of Financial Services, a nominal consumer protection agency, saw it as its duty to make sure that all providers of Bitcoin services in New York and to New Yorkers were providing proper financial surveillance where you'd think that a consumer protection agency would be focusing on the privacy of financial information. They were over there on the other side of this interesting policy and cultural divide. So there'll be more to, more about this, I think, in the near future. I've gone two years to the Financial Action Task Force uh, private sector consultation in Brussels, and the financial services community is very um, forthcoming, surprisingly so, actually, from my point of view, on the costs of this, to their ability to do business, their ability to serve uh, countries and communities that uh, have problems with terrorism, that kind of thing. The de-risking problem is acute, and so that, that's one of, the, one of the things on the cost side of the ledger for financial surveillance. There's a lot to discuss in this area.
0: So th- that's a good point, um, when you're talking about the, you know, who you can't serve because of perceived risk. But let me ask you about, uh, I guess I'll just, I'll just give you the, 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 a straw man question for you to, to bat away at. Well, if you have nothing to hide, what are you worried about? So um, our banks report potentially. So if you buy a house, you're making a big transaction, you're going to have a suspicious activity report potentially filed on you, and this goes to the government. But you know you haven't had a knock on the door, I'm sure, from uh, the financial authorities. Um, so what's what's wrong with the system that we have?
2: The, the fun answer to that question when it's actually someone who's not throwing you a softball just to ask them to give you give you their wallet and you start to read out the material in the wallet and they discover quickly that they have something to hide everyone everyone does and at, and at risk of sloganeering uh, in the United States at least where we have the presumption of innocence uh, you should have privacy for any reason or no reason uh, you may for some for whatever reason uh, not want it known that you buy yogurt at the CVS uh, that's your own business. And financial transactions, just like uh, communications, and, and Bitcoin brings the two together, uh, uh, should be presumed private if people take appropriate steps to to to, to make them so. Um, so obviously open to legitimate investigation based on probable cause, warrants and subpoenas. But the background environment we live in, actually a lot of this data, and and, and surely more than we know, is being fed. Uh, to the NSA or, or whatever other uh, three-letter agency, right now, uh, the, the law that the U.S. government relies on for the um, telecommunications uh, surveillance system it has uh, is was developed in financial services. It was challenges to the Bank Secrecy Act that created what's called the third-party doctrine in the Fourth Amendment, which says that if you share information with a third party, you no l- longer have a Fourth Amendment interest. So our telecommunications providers have been required to turn over at least metadata about our our calls. Almost certainly, almost certainly, our financial services providers are turning over at least that much information or more already about all of our uh, financial transactions.
1: Yeah, can I add uh, something that, uh, another concern, I think, which is in addition to sort of the Fourth Amendment privacy concerns, which I think are very valid, there's also sort of the more, um, I won't say more tangible, but more immediate risks of actually, as you mentioned, having uh, your accounts closed with the bank as a sort of this move for de-risking. So for de-risking, um, I, I, I'm going to assume some audience familiarity, but basically it's uh, you're seeing a movement broadly described right now for banks. Financial institutions uh, no longer being willing to bank what they consider to be high risk clients, uh, especially when those clients, the accounts potentially don't pay off that much as a way to avoid regulatory risk. Uh, and so, for example, if you're doing an all cast transaction for, um, for a house, say in Manhattan, or a house, say in Miami, uh, following sort of FinCEN's global targeting order for those areas, then it's very li- it's p- possible that a bank will just say, listen, you, what you might be doing could be above board, but we don't want to process this transaction or we don't want to be involved in this transaction just in case it's not. So you could be doing, doing something completely legal and still have these immediate tangible and negative consequences Schilling happen. Chilling effect. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So obviously the reason we're talking about all of this in the context of a cryptocurrency conference is that there's a, uh, um, an idea that with these technologies, because they cut out uh, central intermediaries that cut out the middlemen, who are typically the ones who report to uh, the government, who are provide the financial intelligence, financial surveillance, um, that now we have an avenue to transact completely privately for good and for ill. So, Andrea, I'll, I'll ask you a question that sort of came up earlier, but um, it's it's a question that I get asked very often. Is Bitcoin anonymous?
3: Sure. So, Bitcoin is often associated with um, anonymity and you have these kind of privacy rights. But if you look at the reason that it was created, it's actually quite different. Um, if you read through the Bitcoin white paper, if you look through the emails from the creator of Bitcoin, what he or she or whoever this person is is really concerned with is minimizing vulnerability to a third party. Um, so what does this system do? It allows you to transact directly with another party without having to trust that a bank or a payment processor in the middle is there and they're going to, you know, transfer the correct amount, they're not going to block it, um, they're not going to allow your information to be hacked or, you know, improperly used, um, and it works quite well. Um, but it doesn't do is provide perfect privacy or perfect anonymity. In fact, one of the um, central components of Bitcoin, the distributed ledger of transactions called the blockchain, it lists lists every transaction that's ever occurred on the network. Um, And you can't see uh, like in the way when you register with a bank, it's not your social security number and your identity. Um, It's a pseudonym. So the network will assign you a string of letters and numbers that are really difficult to remember. um, And you can send that to another string of letters and numbers that's really difficult to remember in the system. Um, If you just make a transaction, it's possible to do it where it's very difficult to determine that it's you. Um, However, it's also, since every single uh, transaction is on that ledger, it's possible to to trace it back um, to different people, actually. much more easily than I think a lot of people realize. Um, so in, in that regard, the ledger could actually be um, a tool for people that are you know, trying to, to track down um, uh, transactions, trying to track down where money is going in a way that um, traditional systems aren't, where you need the cooperation of that third party. With the blockchain, it's just kind of there for you to sift through.
0: So in fact, you could see where people are buying their yogurt if you had certain little bits of information, right. you, really you could match to those up. Sure. So, so what are the obligations? So obviously, in the traditional financial system, um, banks and, and, and similar financial institutions uh, have to uh, understand what their customers are and report on them to the financial intelligence units. Uh, what are the obligations on, again, on Bitcoin? If there's no Bitcoin company, how, how does financial surveillance take place there?
3: So these kinds of regulations take place at any point in the kind of Bitcoin system where a company is going to exchange um, dollars for Bitcoins when they're managing the account. So this is what's um, considered to be a, a money transmitter by the uh, Financial Services Enforcement Network. I always call it Vincent, yeah. I forget what it actually is. <laughs> um, so basically, it, it, the same kinds of regulations that apply to these uh, companies that would be doing these transactions with. Cash apply with Bitcoin. It's just um, the kind of like the point of introduction and um, exit for cash and Bitcoins in this in this system. Um, and so, just like any other um, cash institution that that is handling these transactions, they need to take people's um, you know name, address, like basic financial information, um, so that they can do this. Um, you know. Surveillance uh, for money laundering, perhaps for terrorism or, you know, fraud. Um, there's uh, a pretty developed system for traditional institutions, and there was a question about how exactly this would apply um, to the Bitcoin economy. So through a series of uh, regulatory guidances, we now have a better understanding that, for example, um, people who are contributing to the Bitcoin code, they don't have to register with Vincent and, and take down um, information if anybody uses Bitcoin, because that would be kind of crazy. <laughs> well, it make for, much for sense.
0: And <laughs> you, you know what's interesting is, I think we're beginning to see de-risking from the Bitcoin companies, where they're looking at what their consumers are trying to do and saying, this looks like something Suspicious that we don't want to, and so we're not going to serve you as the Bitcoin business uh, uh, because we have to comply with um, uh, these regulations. Um, now, so the, the punchline is that Bitcoin is not very private. Right. It's, it's, it's um, pseudonymous, it's pretty good payment system, but it's not, if, you're, if privacy is your number one concern, um, Bitcoin probably isn't uh, it, going to be your choice for a cryptocurrency. And so, Zuko, I know that you and many others in the technical and business community see Bitcoin's lack of privacy as a bug, obviously, and not as a feature. So why is that, and what are you doing about it?
4: There are two answers to why. First, how did I get started on this years ago? Mm -hmm. Uh, And second, why is there so much energy now in so many other projects like mine working on this problem today. Uh, I got started on it because of fungibility. I, I love and value privacy, and I think it's good for society. Um, but fungibility is even more important for a business because you all know what I mean by fungibility, right? <laughs> so you've got
0: 21 million Bitcoins, and you want one Bitcoin to be worth as much as next Bitcoin.
2: I mean, it's worth it's worth detailing for folks who don't yeah. get straight away what you mean by that, Yeah. the last thing you want in a, in a payment system or monetary system is somebody be a, to be able to pull back the coins that you've received in payment. So if, if three transactions ago- That's not
4: what I meant by it, Jim. I'm
2: sorry? That's fine.
4: So uh, I'm glad
2: I asked because
4: what I meant when I said fungibility <laughs> is if, uh, if I'm going to buy a, a bicycle for $100 from you and I have $200 bills, you don't care which $100 bill you take because each one is worth exactly the same as the other one as far as you're concerned. And so I say that those $100 bills are fungible. But if I were buying something from you and I were offering you one of two used cars, it would make a big difference because used cars are not interchangeable in terms of how much you value them. And I got started on, I decided to devote my life to this project, the Zcash project, and and form the Zcash company when I thought that the pervasive traceability of the Bitcoin ledger might mean that Bitcoins are more like used cars than like $100 bills. Every Bitcoin is a unique and special snowflake. Oh, so that's how I got started. (laughs) But I already loved and valued privacy before that. And then uh, in the last six to 12 months, there have been a, a large number of other projects also trying to add privacy to shared ledgers. And the reason for that is because there's so much demand for privacy and shared ledgers. And the surprising fact about that is that demand is coming from the financial industry. Right. So it's not user-driven demand. There, there, there is a lot of demand, demand among users, but I don't know how much they're willing to stump up, whereas the financial industry appears. So when you say financial industry, who, who are you talking about? Who's demanding privacy in the money? Banks, um, clearinghouses intermediaries of all kinds, payment processors, everybody that I have talked to in the financial industry. is think- They're doing two things. A, they're thinking about a shared ledger as a tool that could lower their costs and complexities and could disrupt their industry. So uh, the former is promising because they want to lower costs, and the latter is terrifying, so they're trying to stay on top of it or something. Um, And B, they've realized that the pervasive lack of privacy in the basic shared ledger model is a critical blocker for the use of blockchains within their industry.
0: And why is that? I mean, let's put a point on it.
4: Well, um, because for both regulatory and business reasons, uh, if you're going to have a shared database of financial information, Um, There is no use case I've found yet where it's okay for everyone who uh, accesses the database to be able to read all of the financial information in the database. Um, All of the use cases I've seen, just as trading, clearing, and settlement, and so forth, uh, require that some people are authorized to see some of the information, so like the counterparties are able to look up what they did and see all the facts. Uh, A regulator or um, a clearinghouse is able to see all the trades. Uh, But other parties are required not to be able to see the same data. They can see their own balances, but not anybody else's. Yeah. Right. And um, Bitcoin uh, was really innovative because it made write access cryptographic instead of centralized. That's basically the most important thing about Bitcoin. And uh, at the same time, it made read access uh, just ubiquitous. Everyone can read everything all the time. And so this next step that we're on the cusp of is making read access cryptographic instead of centralized. And that appears to be necessary for the applications of blockchain to all of these different financial industry applications.
0: And so Zcash, which you're building, so if, if I wanted to describe it simply, I could say it's like Bitcoin, except I can't see the blockchain. I can't see transactions the same way. You can
4: only see the part of it that you're authorized to see. And who gives me the authorization? Uh, In Zcash, uh, it's the creator of the transaction. So if you create the transaction, you can see it. And if the creator of the transaction chooses to divulge that to you, then you can see their transaction in the blockchain. Okay,
0: And you're not the only one building uh, solutions
4: that are increasing the privacy of of, of blockchain. Because there's there's so much demand, it's it's drawn a lot of uh, people racing to be the supplier. So Zcash
0: is one, what else?
4: Zcash, um, there's something called uh, confidential transactions. Um, There's something called Enigma, uh, which are all kind of on the cryptographic end of the spectrum, like Zcash, where what we're doing is changing the um, read to be cryptographically controlled instead of centrally centrally controlled or universal. So, that's the cryptographic ones. And then there are uh, several techniques out there which try to protect, to increase privacy by um, combining transactions or sort of obfuscating transactions by mixing them around. Yeah. Are less interesting to me. Right.
0: <laughs> no moon
4: math in those. Um,
0: OK, so it's very interesting that the demand primarily seems to be coming from financial uh, industry. That's that's very interesting to me. Yeah. But regardless of where the demand comes from, the fact is um, we will be seeing uh, uh, cryptocurrencies that are much more private than Bitcoin. And so uh, uh, FinCEN and the other financial intelligence units have been relying on uh, making sure that they have intelligence at the uh, on-ramps and off-ramps into the cryptocurrencies. And then within the cryptocurrencies, they can look at a blockchain. So, Eric, do you think FinCEN, looking at the future, is going to feel that their existing regulations—sorry, miss that last—if their existing regulations, are they're going to feel that they're sufficient to? to
1: um, I, I actually would, I would expect them not to think that they're sufficient. Okay. I would expect you to see a significant increase um, in FinCEN's regulatory sort of scope, um, either directly through you know new regulations that they promulgate or through you know some type of you know a, I would be reluctant to say another global targeting order or something along those lines, but something which would be fairly expansive, depending on a couple couple sort of factors. One is if you do see this development sort of take hold, where the blockchain information becomes far more private, and FinCEN becomes increasingly alarmed that what they're seeing, what they're not seeing, is actually useful for financial intelligence. Uh, And then the other thing I think is that it's going to be situation dependent. So, you know, we haven't seen, for example, large. There haven't been public indications. On a large scale, of major use of cryptocurrency um, by uh, like terror organizations or financing terrorist attacks, right? There was some indication that it might have happened with the ISIL attacks in Paris, but no one's fully sure, as far as I know. And so I think, right? Yeah. So I think that, that was.
4: That was. Debunked. Right, exactly. It was it,
1: it caught the news cycle for like a couple of days and then was pretty much out. But I think that if you do see a situation where it becomes more rampant with a fairly visible organization that's engaged in those types of activities, then you would potentially see a significant uh, ramp up in regulatory authority.
0: What would you think it would be the appropriate response? You know, you, know, you are, you're, you're Vincent's chair. What kind of options do you think uh, they would, they would uh, think about?
1: Oof. Um... I mean, I think you would, you would expect to see something like requiring significant EDD on behalf of any entity that's t- uh, sorry enhanced due diligence sorry yes. on behalf of any um, any entity that's touching um, any any blockchain related technology or cryptocurrency. So basically, an attempt in effect to um, you know know exactly who the user is at a particular time. One other item you might see, and I think you and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, is I think you could see the regulators attempting to create sort of a backdoor um, into this information. So the information itself might not be public. They might, you know, the, the, the private, um, the blockchain information itself might be private, but that there could be law enforcement or regulatory authorities who basically request or require um, backdoor uh, insight into who is actually conducting these transactions. And I think that's, you know, goes to sort of this whole Apple, um, uh, the iPhone, Apple debate that we've seen play out over the past couple
0: And this is where the First Amendment implications Yeah,
1: exactly.
2: Before Eric said backdoor, I was going to argue for seeing parallels between this and the orthodox encryption debate that's going on right now. Um, Assume more widespread use of uh, Bitcoin as it stands now. It won't just be financial intelligence units. There will be a lot of people watching the blockchain and doing a lot of observation. So for appropriate privacy purposes, people will, will start to conceal. And the question will be posed. Uh, does do my yogurt purchases we've made that a theme of the of the panel do my yogurt purchases get to be private or do they have to be available to everyone uh, and and you know the argument that that the, the blockchain has to be kept open in order to get at ISIL should it ever use it means that I can't have financial privacy the better uh, the better approach in my view and the, the approach that delivers more security in total is allowing people to have financial privacy. Uh, privacy, that is every every user in the United States and worldwide, at the cost, and it, it's truly a cost that will be paid, but this is a tension we, we reconcile all the time, of some some less access to information on the use of, uh, of Bitcoin or the blockchain by criminals and, and any terrorists that use it. Yeah. So a, a trade-off, a real trade-off, but I think the right way to, to make that trade-off is pretty apparent.
0: Going back to the backdoor question, though, this would be a requirement like we saw in the Apple case, that a uh, software engineer write, speak, code. Um, how does that square with the First Amendment?
2: Not very well, um, and, and, but, it, but it's debatable. Um, you know, in the Apple, in the Apple case, uh, before the US government saw the writing on the wall and dropped it, Uh, There there was some argument, is is requiring engineers to write a piece of software, is that forcing them to speak? Is it the signing of the software with with Apple's special key that is forcing them to speak? Uh, I think about this in a sort of multidimensional way. Um, We do uh, uh, agree to, to let the government conscript us for certain purposes. When we have jury duty, we go, and I do. Uh, when, we're, when we're subject to a subpoena or warrant that's not uh, out, of, out of bounds, we, private actors, spend our own money and time on responding to those things. That's appropriate. But can the government say, you have to build your product this way? You have to break your product this way in the case of Apple? And I think that, that people working with Bitcoin in the blockchain would regard it as breaking their products. If Zuko, for example, is required to build backdoors into his products, uh, that would be very closely analog- analogous to what the, uh, the government is asking of Apple. It would not be analogous to what the government is asking of the Ford Motor Company when it So that's interesting. So, so
0: we have an existing subpoena and warrant process. So I want to get to Andre, but first I want to ask Zuko, so is there a process through which you know, a, a user on your network can disclose when they need to?
4: And, and sure. Um, so we call it selective disclosure, um, and it's nothing like a backdoor, in my opinion. It's right. that when you have a database with read access controls, you need multiple people to be able to view certain tables or columns or whatever, and just because that's your business requirement. <laughs> and um, Zcash and some of the other technologies like it can support that, and that makes it Fitting to the regulatory and commercial requirements of the finance industry, at least, right? Where they're required to disclose a whole bunch of data to regulators um, for legal reasons, as well as to disclose a whole bunch of data to various kinds of business partners for commercial reasons. Does that
0: answer your question? Yeah. Like to me, but the, but the point is, that there's, like, there's a way that you can address the concerns short of a backdoor
4: oh yeah, like we kind of jumped from the requirement for access to data to a backdoor, and I can see why you might think that, but you only need a backdoor if you're requiring an uncooperative person and you're, you're, you're tricking them, you're tricking them, right? But that's not the relationship between in the United States, at least between regulators and companies. So let's pick
0: up on that. We've been talking in this context of the United States, where um, the United States government has certain ends, it meets those ends through using financial intelligence to project power, et cetera. But the United States is not the only government in the world, uh, Andrea, so I think you've looked at in the past um, that the, the, the ability that cryptocurrencies sometimes allow us to be private actually can be a good thing, and private against others, you know, against states can be a good thing.
3: Sure, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that some of the most authoritarian governments in the world think of Bitcoin as public enemy number one. And you know, from our perspective as people who really value um, you know, human rights and individual autonomy and just people's ability to you know, live a good life, um, this is a tool we'll probably wanna protect. So for instance, uh, earlier in the day, people were talking about um, individuals living in countries where their monetary systems are very badly mismanaged. Or you know, take the situation um, in Greece last summer, um, when the country imposed capital controls due to the ongoing problems with the eurozone, and there were people in that country that you know were stuck, and if they needed to get some item, let's say some critical item um, like you know medical equipment, um, like a vaccine, like a like a, a pharmaceutical they need, and it's not in the country. They couldn't do anything about it at that time. Um, so there's the economic dimension, but then there's also kind of the um, political human rights dimension. So consider um, people who are perhaps fighting, you know, what we might consider an oppressive government, like um, the situation in the Ukraine. There's, you know, we have case study that people who are protesting for their rights over there are funding their protests at least partly with cryptocurrency, um, and that's something that, from our perspective, is important to um, you know, protect and uphold. Um, so, you know, it's important that we don't just look at the worst-case scenario. We need to also think of, you know, the people that really need this kind of technology and make sure that we consider them also.
0: Um, Eric, we were talking about this earlier, and I thought it was interesting. If you were a bad person, a terrorist, or what would you use? You mentioned before that you probably wouldn't use cryptocurrency. What would you use? How, how
1: all right, so this, this comes from my biases as a, as a former white-collar attorney. Um, but if, if it were me, I would go to Delaware, and I would have whoever my attorney is now set up a shell company in Delaware um, called, you know, Jim Harper, LLC. <laughs> <laughs> and under U.S. law, I, I would give money. I would give the proceeds of my, you know, my, my, drug, uh, my drug deals in Latin America. Um, I'd put it into Jim Harper, LLC. And under U.S. law, for example, um, the banks I'd I be working with would only know that Jim Harper LLC receives money from a particular location. They don't have to actually do, uh, they don't have to go through and determine who the beneficial owners of that account are. Um, and on a transactional basis, don't actually necessarily and legally have to determine um, who, uh, who, where the basically the funds are coming from, and so if you really want to do sort of money laundering, terrorism financing, etc. Again, this is from a, a sort of a white collar attorney's perspective. I think there are equally there there are, are avenues that are available across a wide range um, across a wide spectrum, and Bitcoin could be one of them. But there are also tried and true avenues that we've seen. I and mean, I think the Panama Papers, you know, revelations of the past two weeks has been. An, a, a perfect example uh, of this kind of you know, non-transparent financial economy that, that exists.
2: Let me just say, I, I hope I'm good enough at identity <laughs> fraud that I'm to go and collect all the proceeds uh, from yeah. the drug dealers that were used to <laughs> defame me. But uh, uh,
0: So I guess if it's so obvious, why does this uh, exist?
2: Uh,
1: why does? Uh, does...
0: The, the ability to, get to go uh, open up a shell company in Delaware well, I mean, it's funny, right? Like, you're telling me this is the easiest thing in the world.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, but I think there, are, you know, as with many things, there are, um, you know, legitimate reasons to open shell companies. There are tax reduction purposes. There are, you know, um, liability limiting purposes to to open shell companies. Um, and there are also illicit uses for them too, money laundering, terrorist financing, sanctions evasion, um, et cetera. So uh, this is kind of the whole, I don't want to jump into the Panama Papers yeah, stuff yeah. too much, but this That's is the entire conference. kind of, yeah. Undetermined element of the Panama Papers is that some stuff is very bad there, but most
0: of it is legitimate, which, yeah. which is interesting. Which kind of takes us full circle. That in fact, most of the demand for the kinds of technologies that Zuko and Zcash are building and that others are building comes from perfectly legitimate, in fact, global banks. Mm-hmm. To put a, a point on it, um, let me ask you one last question, Zuko, before we go to Q and A. So, but the, the fact is, what you're building can sound scary to some folks, because they, they see um, themselves going dark, even though that's, uh, you know, we, we, that's, that's probably too simple a way uh, to put it. So the, the question to you is, as privacy gets more robust in these technologies, how do we make sure that we can catch and punish those
4: who are harming others? You know, I've been thinking about this, and my honest answer is, I don't know, which may be dissatisfying. Um, but I feel a little bit uh, justified in saying it here because this is the first time I've ever been here, and I'm in the Hayek Auditorium. One thing I learned from reading Hayek is the importance of humility about thinking you know the consequences of what you design. Um, so from a, from a science and from an entrepreneurship perspective, I see a lot of signals, a lot of promise of vastly beneficial Applications of this technology, uh, not only in the finance industry, but it'll go to every other industry if it works, because it's just a database. Um, and I don't—I personally don't see any evidence of harm yet. And in the long run, I don't know what will happen.
2: Okay. So I've thought—I've thought about this some because there's a when you do your you know far future prognostications, uh, you could have. Uh, Bitcoin or some successor used to abscond with funds to, to to support lots of bad things, and but you see evidence in 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 recent behavior or in current community behavior that that might not go so well. So when, for example, the 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 uh, uh, the idea has been raised that Bitcoin might be used for terror financing, the Bitcoin community goes and looks at that. They look at it real hard because if they want if it is happening, they want to help chase it down. And I could imagine, again, it's, it's rather, rather far down the horizon, where, where the law enforcement community comes to the Bitcoin community, but perhaps uh, you know, what, what, spontaneous, what spontaneously generates this process, I don't know, and says, hey, we've got a legitimate investigation about a really bad set of behaviors. We have these addresses. Uh, we are a government that respects your privacy in general. We believe in fungibility, which by the way, we're talking about the same thing, but just different ways. Um, and those good actors who are pursuing genuine malamense crimes, that is genuine true crimes, I don't think the Bitcoin community wants to buy into the drug war, the Bitcoin doesn't, community doesn't want to prosecute foreign policy for the US government or any other, but when you're talking about genuine crimes where people are, are harmed. Watch the community swarm over this problem and say, oh, well, this transaction relates to that transaction. And, talk. you know, you communicate with that person. They say, okay, I'm on it. That relates to that. That relates to that. And the community can come together and expose, I think, I, I think expose real wrongdoers for law enforcement for the, for the benefit of the community and the world at large.
0: Okay. So let's uh, open it up to questions. I think I see one up here.
4: Hi, my name is Lem Lasher. I have two questions. Are our Fifth Amendment rights protected if someone, some agency, or some entity came to us and required us to disclose our keys? And secondly, what are the risks associated with being forced to disclose holdings of Bitcoins under FATCA legislation?
2: I, I'm going to do something that Talking Heads rarely do. To, to your first question, I don't know. Uh, I've seen that debate going on, and maybe you have something on, Jerry, but about whether whether being forced to share a password is testimonial under the Fifth Amendment. It's not. It's not there, my I amendment, think there, so I can't it answer. It may
0: be a court uh, split there.
4: Yeah, that's what I'm asking. I mm-hmm.
0: Oh, what do we think? Yeah, it should be. It's testimonial. If it's in your head, it's testimonial. You should you know you should have a Fifth Amendment uh, privilege there. If you've written it down on a piece of paper, you're going to have to turn over the piece of paper.
2: That's what I my view, anyway. As to the second part of your question, um, I can't give you the legal answer because I'm not a FATCA expert either, but it surfaces the tension where uh, possession of value has been jurisdictional up to now, and in Bitcoin it's not. So I, am I actually, my, my tax guy said, Is your Bitcoin held in any foreign accounts? Because I was in the <laughs> United States. I said, No, it's in the United States. But uh, when I'm overseas, it might be said (laughs) that my Bitcoin is in a foreign account. There's sort of no way to to nest these two concepts because it sort of breaks down jurisdiction. Bitcoin is everywhere and nowhere, and we're used to jurisdictional ownership of things.
0: Okay. Uh, Do I see one back here? Wait, let's... Oh, I should have mentioned, wait for the microphone... Uh, state your name and where your uh, your affiliation, if you'd yeah. like, because we're, we care about privacy up there. If you yeah. don't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. My name is Yurata
5: Land. I'm just curious. Uh, it's not just terrorists; it's local. It's local bad guys have been um, using Bitcoin as means of payment. For example, most recently in the newspapers was about the various hospitals who've been hacked, and their ransomware was placed on their systems, and they were threatened, and payment had to be made in Bitcoin. And even there was even some. Uh, various police organizations that were hacked and payment was taken to Bitcoin. And my understanding is they haven't tracked down the ransomware holders. So that is a malfeasance. That is a bad use of Bitcoin. Could you comment to that? I mean.
2: Coin Center has a paper on that out recently, don't they? Yeah, but I'll, I'll let the, the
0: folks, uh, panelists talk first before I
3: show sure. I mean, you my answer. Very quickly, ransomware has been um, a big problem with cryptocurrency. It kind of allows and. A new kind of crime, much easier than it you know could be before. Um, in terms of a you know blockchain kind of system, it's going to be hard for you to perhaps hide the bag after you have it. It's possible, but you know maybe that's a direction that people have, can take to prosecute it. Um, but it is an ongoing problem, and one you know it's a problem with cybersecurity more general. Uh,
0: you know, I would say that number one, um, ransomware has existed for yeah. decades. Um, What's new is that folks are using Bitcoin uh, to to accept payment. And if you think about what makes ransomware possible, it is cryptography, it's Bitcoin, um, and it is bad cybersecurity on the part of the victim, which sounds a little bit like victim blaming. But the fact is, you really can't do anything about cryptography because it's what powers our online banking and our Amazon purchases. Um, Bitcoin, we've discussed its advantages here. There's not much you can do there, except you could actually track um, the payments after they've been made. Sadly, a lot of these payments, I imagine, are going to Russia or Eastern Europe, where the authorities on that end aren't going to be cooperative with um, authorities here. But finally, the one thing that we absolutely can do something about is poor cybersecurity on the part of uh, corporations, hospitals, police departments. uh, that is the vector that is under our control. Um, and I think where we can make it, you know, do a lot of good there. But you're absolutely right, it's, uh, it's, it's a scourge. It's not a scourge that, um, that needed Bitcoin to exist. It existed before Bitcoin. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's serious. There's a question all the way in the back.
2: Just briefly while the microphone's heading up, the, Jerry's point reminds me of one that's relevant to what we were talking about earlier. If you watch those ISIL videos, they're always driving around in Toyota trucks. Yeah. Say to yourself, if we want to stop ISIL, we got to go after Toyota. Right.
1: It's, and, you know what? And,
0: and it's impossible to, 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 I guess, figure out where they're getting those trucks.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, we got a, um, a frantic phone call uh, in October, I think, late September, early October of last year, from a client that had dealerships in Baghdad and they were worried that there were those trucks that were actually on, on TV in uh, ISO-controlled areas. So wow. it's a, a very serious sort of reputational. So there's,
2: so there's no your customer, and there's no your customer's gas station.
4: <laughs> Let me make a factual point real quick. There, there is not only no evidence that terrorists have used Bitcoin for anything yet, but there's some evidence that they haven't. Yeah. It's really a clear case that the thing that was in the news turned out to be a lie it was a, that was debunked, as okay. having been made up by someone with an ulterior motive. But the thing about ransomware, that really
2: happens. <laughs> Similarly, I, I, I went and briefed US Central Command on Bitcoin a year and a half, two years ago. And I got some very interesting press calls from, from press who were really, really trying to get me to say that this had happened. It hasn't happened. It's interesting to talk about it. It's the most interesting thought experiment out there because of the dynamics. But it hasn't. And
0: I have to say that although I completely agree, there's no evidence um, uh, that terrorists have used this. Um, I don't want to give the impression that terrorists couldn't and won't in the future. It may well happen. um, And and, and what we have to understand is that that says nothing about what we're all doing in our respective uh, Um, I think, yeah.
5: So Jerry, I appreciate, I'm Carol Van Cleef with Manette Phelps and Phillips. Um, I appreciate your comments about the, uh, the flaws in, in personal cybersecurity um, that may lead to the ransomware. Um, I guess the question I have for the panelists is: Do you think it's appropriate that the government is in trying to um, clamp down on ransomware is actually going after those exchangers who exchange dollars for Bitcoin to allow the victims to be able to uh, to be able to, I guess, unlock their computers? Uh, because what we've seen is a general move to say to the, the to blame the, the exchangers for engaging in that transaction and telling them that they are aiding and abetting potentially in criminal activity for doing so.
1: Please. No, you, I insist. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think it's, you know, I think the regulatory authorities are, and the enforcement authorities are trying to find any kind of pressure point that they can with the current set of authorities that they do have now. To try to either get at ransomware or get at sort of illicit activities conducted by Bitcoin. And one of the one areas that they can see that happening is in the exchanges. It's kind of the one place where sort of the Bitcoin sort of world meets, you know, sort of the traditional, I guess, financial world a little bit more, sort of more squarely. And so I don't necessarily think that it's appropriate um, for them to be pressuring these particular actors, but at the same time, it's kind of a, it it seems like it's a, what they perceive to be their most uh, fruitful option right now.
3: And from what I understand, the way that most, if not maybe all, ransomware works is it's um, set on a timer. So if you don't pay the ransom by a certain time, it it might wipe your hard drive or, you know, uh, just completely corrupt your data. So in terms of the way that the actual crime works, I'm not sure that it makes sense to target the exchanger in that way um, either
0: you'll be ultimately punishing the right. victim. I mean,
3: it's yeah. kind of like, it's unfortunate, but you, you know, pay it to save your data, and then perhaps after the fact can go in and find the criminal. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, given the, the time kind of crunch on that, that that is really conducive to helping the victims.
0: There's a question over here.
1: Yeah, hi, I'm Richard Weston with the Blockchain uh, DC Blockchain Users Group. Um, from a policy, policy perspective,
3: isn't
4: there a, a risk of, of a backlash with uh, with a stronger a stronger
1: encryption and blockchain blockchain technology, where um, public safety uh, eventually starts weighing the concerns of privacy?
2: The two the two issues actually come together, and uh, and I can illustrate that. From a non, you know, a non Bitcoin uh, privacy and security uh, perspective, it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the California Department of Motor Vehicles uh, didn't really have any rules about what they what they did with information about drivers. So you could go into a local DMV office and get information about about any driver you wanted. Uh, a guy who was uh, stalking or, uh, an actress named Rebecca Schaefer went to the California DMV, got information about her home address, went to her house, and killed her. Um, after that, there were many, many driver prote- privacy protection acts passed, and there was a federal driver's privacy protection act passed. Um, there's where uh, privacy protects security, and that, that same thing would would be applicable in this in this area. Uh, my financial privacy is important because if I'm a wealthy person, I'm not, alas, but if I were. Uh, Somebody could monitor my financial transactions, know where I'm spending, know how wealthy I am, and that would be, uh, you know, would, would perhaps promote a kidnapping or some, some other kind of um, uh, security, personal security challenge for me. Um, so I get my privacy at some, perhaps at some cost to state security, uh, but I think in total, if you're sort of able to measure the weight of this rock versus the length of this line, we're better off with more people having privacy and the security they get from it than we are from having everyone uh, without privacy and that security, so that in certain punctuated incidents, the the uh, government has the security or the security the, the sort of law enforcement security that we're looking for. Difficult trade-offs again. The question was, does it become so so dark that there's so much privacy out there that law enforcement can't do anything? Uh, no, because most crimes require multiple parties. Uh, a lot of them happen in, in physical terrain. They can be observed. There's infiltration. There's uh, 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 confidential informants or snitches, depending on which side you're which side you're on. I would say it's a sort of sort of a
0: relatively new development that law enforcement has access to electronic surveillance, of either finance or communications. So
2: it's actually not new. And it's a yeah, it's a classic discussion. It's the going dark argument. Um, there, the amount of data about us. Is, is burgeoning, exploding. Uh, and some percentage of that, obviously, is available to law enforcement. So they're probably generally better off than they were prior. But their expectations have also exploded. So relative to the amount of data, they feel like they're not getting that much. There's a, they've sort of tried to instill a principle in our society that the existence of data uh, creates a right of law enforcement to have it. And, and that's emphatically not true. There is data about us that law enforcement isn't entitled to have absent, uh, sufficient uh, legal justification. My opinion, and I think it's a good one.
0: (laughs) Eric, were you going to say something?
2: No, I was going to agree with Jim.
0: Other questions? I see one in the back over here, and then I see one there.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tim Brennan, UMBC. this is primarily for Mr. Harper, but others may weigh in. At one point in, in the terrorism discussion, and this question is not particularly about that, you referred to the, something called the Bitcoin community <laughs> taking care of this. Um, should I worry about the Bitcoin community? Are they Are they the trusted third party that people say we've gotten rid of? I mean, who are they, and do I have to worry about them? <laughs>
2: Yes, you should worry, and you should also have confidence in the Bitcoin community because it's a, a very diverse, somewhat rambunctious community. The one, the, the part of the community you hear about a lot are the folks on Reddit and the folks who are sort of making outlandish claims about where, where it's going with Bitcoin, but there's a huge uh, group under that who are practical, sensible, people who want to see the, the growth of Bitcoin, want to see it used for good purposes and not used for bad. So. It's that shorthand Bitcoin community. Yes, uh, uh, papers over a lo- uh, many many dimensions, but I strongly believe, knowing the people I know, that uh, that there's a solid community of good people uh, who want the best for Bitcoin, and the, the, the noise that you hear from uh, the people who want who think Bitcoin is going to destroy government tomorrow, or that who sort of even uh, I think carelessly um, extol the criminal virtues of of Bitcoin. Just put it aside. There's a community just like the community in this room, just like the community in our country, who are Bitcoin users and want to see all the benefits of it for global financial inclusion, uh, privacy protection, and many others. I think a, a better
0: way to think about it, or not a better way, but another way to think about it is just as a technical community uh, or as a user community. Um, and you see this around everything. I mean, There is a um, community around domain names on the web. There is a community around email servers these things exist.
2: Let me just share a little another, another thought. I did a study of the Bitcoin ecosystem for the Bitcoin Foundation and asked the leadership of the Bitcoin Foundation, which may or may not be a cross-section of the community at the time, um, what outcomes they wanted to see from Bitcoin's success. Unprompted, I didn't give them a list to select from. Unprompted, each one of them said they wanted to see increased global financial inclusion. Because half of the world's people do not have access to financial services. And the Bitcoin community, if that's representative of them, are very, very devoted to getting the other half of the world's people in a position to save for uh, getting a better house, to educate their children, to start that small business that contributes to the tax base that allows for for roads in their community, and and, uh, the rule of law and everything else. There's a lot of development that is not happening under the current regime. And many people in the Bitcoin community see it as a huge opportunity uh, for for
1: our our system to serve the, the entire world. And building off of that, I mean I think in, in that sense the Bitcoin community, as you know, we've sort of referenced it here, is in in a way its own best friend. I mean you know, we were talking earlier about you know, oh, if there's a risk of a ransomware attack, or if there's a risk of a terrorist attack that relies on Bitcoin, et cetera. The Bitcoin community, as we were saying earlier, is actually probably the entity or the, the group of individuals or persons who have sort of the most to lose if that actually happens. And so, you know, I, I think that if you're, you know, if a community is intent on sort of providing these useful services um, and these frankly necessary services, particularly in places where de-risking has occurred and there are no other financial services that are there, you know, the, to the extent that. Um, you know, uh, certain small numbers of illicit actors misuse this technology, that hurts that broader community. And so I think that there is this potential for a real effective self-policing function there. That doesn't require extensive government sort of intervention, I think.
0: Okay, more questions. I think this gentleman here has been very patient, right here. If you wanna stand up? We'll get a microphone to you. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Keep going. Keep going. Sorry, Bill. I'll get to you next. But this gentleman been very patient. Thanks.
6: Um, timely, given the comment just there. I work at USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development on Financial Inclusion. My name is Paul Nelson. So I, I think earlier you mentioned FADF and the role that that can have in being able to extend financial services in previously underserved areas, the tension between or the perceived tension between financial integrity and financial inclusion, privacy and security, innovation and uh, stability. So in the emerging economies or developing world context, how do we approach some of these issues related uh, specifically to privacy? So you have governments that may not always be um, perceived as threats potentially to their citizens, but are very often uh, stretched, low human capacity, lack of resources, lack of funding. So, how do they effectively engage on this issue?
2: Well, it's not exactly a it's not exactly a privacy-based response, but I but I I think that the uh, the global financial surveillance regime needs to actually be assessed in terms of risk management. Now, FATF itself is very good at at talking about risk, saying that that. Financial services providers should use a risk-based approach when they determine uh, who they who they're going to deal with and how they're going to, uh, you know, assess their customers and so on and so forth. But it may well be. My impression is, and this might be a little unfair, is that they're not managing the risk of harm or damage coming to to their countries or to the world. They're managing the risk of regulators being on their backs. Um, so if I think that regime, the financial surveillance regime, should be assessed in terms of risk management itself. We're probably spending multiple billions of dollars per year worldwide on things like suspicious activity reports, know your customer, and so on and so forth, to save a lot of hassle. Entire countries, entire business lines are being sort of nicked out, in terms, of, and it's called euphemistically de-risking. Um, the cost in terms of security, the t- cost in terms of lost economic development might be huge. So we're spending money to make ourselves worse off. I'm saying that I don't know it because it hasn't been uh, fully studied, but I think you'd likely find that in a in a thorough study of what the global financial regime surveillance regime costs versus what it produces in benefits.
0: Okay, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Help me thank this
4: wonderful panel.